Section 8 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Lord Byron, Part 2. Far be it from me to attempt an analysis of the merits of the poem with which the fame of Byron will be forever identified. Its great merits are universally conceded, and while it has defects, great inequalities in both style and matter, some stanzas supernal in beauty and others only mediocre. On the whole, the poem is extraordinary. Byron adopted the Spenserian measure, perhaps the most difficult of all measures, hard even to read aloud, in which blank verse seems to blend with rhyme. It might be either to the ear, though to the eye it is elaborate rhyme, such as would severely task a made poet, but which this born poet seems to have thrown off without labor. The leading peculiarity of the poem is description, of men and places, of the sea, the mountain, and the river, of nature in her loveliness and mysteries, of cities and battlefields consecrated by the heroism of brave and gifted men, in Greece, in Rome, in medieval Europe, with swift passing glances at salient points in history, showing extensive reading and deep meditation. As to the spirit of Child Harold, it is not satirical. It is more pensive than bitter and reveals the loneliness and sorrows of an unsatisfied soul, the unrest of a pilgrim in search for something new. It seeks to penetrate the secrets of struggling humanity, at war often with those certitudes which are the consolation of our inner life. It everywhere recognizes the soul as that which gives greatest dignity to man. It invokes love as the noblest joy of life. The poem is one of the most ideal of human productions, soaring beyond what is material and transient. It is not religious, not reverential, not Christian, like the Divine Comedy and the Paradise Lost. And yet it is lofty, aspiring, exulting in what is greatest in deed or song, destined to immortality of fame and admiration. It is a confession indirectly of the follies and shortcomings of the author, and of their retribution, but complains not of the nemesis that avenges everything. It is sensitive of wrongs and injustices and misrepresentations, but does not hurl anathemas. Speaking in sorrow rather than in anger, except in regard to hypocrisies and shams and lies, when its scorn is intense and terrible. The whole poem is brilliant and original, but does not flash like fire in a dark night. It was written with the heart's blood, and is as earnest as it is penetrating. It does not ascend to the higher mysteries forever veiled from mortal eye, nor descend to the deepest depths of hatred and despair, but confines itself to those passions which have marked gifted mortals, and those questionings in which all thoughtful minds have ever delighted. It does not make revelations like Hamlet or Macbeth. It does not explore secrets hidden forever from ordinary minds like Faust. But it muses and meditates on what fate and time have brought to pass, such events as have been revealed in history. It invokes the neglected but impressive monuments of antiquity to tell the tales of glory and of shame. In moral wisdom, it is vastly inferior to Shakespeare, and it is not rich in those wise and striking lines which pass into the proverbs of the world. But it has the glow of a poetic soul longing for fame, craving love, and not unmindful of immortality. Its most beautiful stanzas are full of tenderness and sadness for lost or unrequited affections of reproachless sorrow for broken friendships, in which the soul would fain have lived but for inconsistencies and contradictions which made true and permanent love impossible. 
the poem paints a paradise lost rather than a paradise regained. I wonder at its popularity, for it seems to me too deep and learned for popular appreciation, except in those stanzas where pathos or enthusiasm, expressed in matchless language, appeal to the heart and soul. Of all modern poets, Byron is the most human and outspoken, daring to say what many would fear or blush to meditate upon. He fearlessly reveals the infirmities and audacities of a double and mysterious nature, made up of dust and deity, now groveling in the mire, then borne aloft to the skies. The football of the eternal powers of good and evil, enslaved and yet to be emancipated, as we may hope, in the last and final struggle, when the soul is rescued by omnipotence. I have alluded to the triumphs of Byron on the publication of Child Herald, but his joys were more than balanced by his sorrows. His mother died suddenly without seeing him. His dearest friend Matthews was drowned. He was hampered by creditors. He made no mark in the House of Lords and was sick of what he called parliamentary mummeries. His habits became more and more dissipated among the boon companions who courted his society. His reputation after a while began to wane, for people became ashamed of their enthusiasm. Some critics disparaged his poetry, and conventional circles were shocked by his morals. Three years of London life told on his constitution, and he was completely disenchanted. He sought retirement and solitude, for not even the most brilliant society satisfied him. He wearied of such a woman and admirer as Madame de Stal. He went to Holland House, that resort of all the eminent ones of the time, as seldom as he could. He buried himself with a few intimate friends, chiefly poets, among whom were Moore and Rogers. He saw and liked Sir Walter Scott, but did not push his acquaintance to intimacy. The larger part of his letters were written to Murray, the publisher, who treated him generously. But Byron gave away his literary gains to personal friends in need. He seemed to scorn copyrights for support. He would write only for fame. At the age of 27, in January 1815, Byron married Miss Milbank, a lady whom he did not love, but to whom he was attracted by her supposed wealth, which would patch up his own fortunes. He had great respect for this lady and some friendship, but with all her virtues and attainments, she was cold, conventional, and exacting. A mystery shrouds this unfortunate affair, which has never been fully revealed. The upshot was that, to Byron's inexpressible humiliation, in less than a year she left him, never to return. No reasons were given. It was enough that both parties were unhappy and had cause to be, and both kept silence. But the voice of rumor and scandal was not silent. All the failings of Byron were now exaggerated and dwelt upon by those who envied him and by those who hated him, for his enemies were more numerous than his friends. Those whom he had snubbed or ridiculed or insulted now openly turned against him. The conventional public had a rare subject for their abuse or indignation. Proper people, religious people, and commonplace people joined in the cry against a man with whom a virtuous woman could not live. Indeed, no woman could have lived happily with Byron, and very few were the women with whom he could have lived happily, by reason of that irritability and unrest which is so common with genius. The habits of abstraction and contemplation which absorbed much of his time at home were not easily understood by an ordinary woman, to whom social life is necessary. Byron lived much in his library, which was his solitary luxury. In the revelry of the imagination, his heart became cold. To follow poetry, says Pope, one must leave father and mother and cleave to it alone, as Dante and Petrarch and Milton did. Not even Byron's intense craving for affection could be satisfied when he was dwelling on the ideals which his imagination created, and which scarcely friendship could satisfy. 
Even so good a man as Carlyle lived among his books rather than in the society of his wife, whom he really loved, and whose virtues and attainments he appreciated and admired. An affectionate woman runs a great risk in marrying an absorbed and preoccupied man of genius, even if his character be reproachless. Unfortunately, the character of Byron was anything but reproachless, and no one knew this better than his wife, which knowledge doubtless alienated what little affection she had for him. He seems to have sought low company even after his marriage, and Lady Byron has intimated that she did not think him altogether sane. Living with him as his wife was insupportable, but though she separated from him, she did not seek a divorce. Byron would not have married at all if he had consulted his happiness, and still more his fame. In reviewing the great names of philosophy and science, we shall find that those who have most distinguished themselves have virtually admitted their own unfitness for the marriage tie by remaining in celibacy. Newton, Gassendi, Galileo, Descartes, Bale, Locke, Leibniz, Boyle, Hume, Gibbon, Macaulay, and a host of others. The scandal which Byron's separation from his wife created, and his known and open profligacy, at last shut him out from the society of which he had been so bright an ornament. It is a peculiarity of the English people, which redounds to their honor, to exclude from public approbation any man, however gifted or famous, who has outraged the moral sense by open and ill-disguised violation of the laws of morality. The cases of Dilke and Parnell in our own day are illustrations known to all. What in France or Italy is condoned is never pardoned or forgotten in England. Not even a Voltaire, a Rousseau, or a Mirabeau, had they lived in England, could have been accepted by English society, much less a man who scorned and ridiculed it. Even Byron, for a few years the pet, the idol, and the glory of the country, was not too high to fall. To quote one of his own stanzas, He who ascends to mountain tops shall find the loftiest peaks most wrapped in clouds and snow. He who surpasses or subdues mankind must look down on the hate of those below. Though high above the sun of glory glow, and far beneath the earth and ocean spread, round him are icy rocks and loudly blow, contending tempests on his naked head. Embarrassed in his circumstances, filled with disgust, mortification, and shame, excluded from the proudest circles, Byron now resolved to leave England forever and bury himself in such foreign lands as were most congenial to his tastes and habits. But for his immorality, he might still have shined at an exalted height, for he had not yet written anything which shocked the practical English mind. The worst he had written was bitter satire, yet not more bitter than that of Swift or Pope. No defiance, no blasphemous sentiments, or what seemed to many to be such, had yet escaped him. His corsair and his bride of Abydos appeared soon after the child Harold, and added to his fame by their exquisite melody of rhyme and sentimental admiration for Oriental life, though even these were tinged with that abandon which afterwards made his later poems a scandal and reproach. The disappointment of youthful passion and the lassitude and remorse of premature excess, the lone friendlessness of his life, and, I may add, the reproaches of society induced him to fly from the scene of his brilliant successes, filled with blended sentiments of scorn, hatred, defiance, and despair. In the spring of 1816, at the age of 28, Byron left England forever, a voluntary exile on the face of the earth, saddened, embittered, and disappointed. It was to Italy that he turned his steps, passing through Brussels and Flanders, lingering on the Rhine, enamored with its ruined castles, still more with nature, 
and making a long stay in Switzerland. Here he visited the castle of Chilon and all the spots made memorable by the abodes of Rousseau, Gibbon, and Madame de Stal, and all the most interesting scenery of the Bernese Alps, Lake Leman, Interlaken, Thun, the Jungfrau, the glaciers, Barents, Chamuni, Bern, and on to Geneva, where he made the acquaintance of Shelley and his wife. The Shelleys he found most congenial and stayed with them some time. While in the neighborhood of Geneva, he produced the third canto of Child Harold, The Prisoner of Chilon, A Dream, and other things. In October, he passed on to Milan, Verona, and Venice, and in this latter city, he took up his residence. Oh, that we could blot out Byron's life in Venice, made up of love adventures and dissipation and utter abandonment to those pleasures that appealed to his lower nature, as if he were possessed by a demon, utterly reckless of his health, his character, and his fame. Venice was, then, the most immoral city in Italy, given over to idleness and pleasure. It was here that Byron's contempt for woman became fixed, seeing only her weaknesses and follies, and it was this contempt for woman which intensified the abhorrence in which his character was generally held, in the most respectable circles in England. Even in distant Venice, his baleful light was not under a bushel, and the scandals of his life extended far and wide, especially that in reference to Margarita Cogni, an illiterate Viraggio who could neither read nor write, and whom he was finally compelled to discard on account of the violence of her temper, after living with her in the most open manner. And yet, in all this degradation, he was not idle. How could so prolific a writer be? Byron did not ordinarily rise till two o'clock in the afternoon, and spent the interval between his breakfast and dinner in riding on the Lido, one of those long, narrow islands which lie between the Adriatic and the lagoon, in the midst of which Venice is built, on the islets arising from its shallow waters. Yet he found time to begin his Don Juan, besides writing The Lament of Tasso, The Tragedy of Manfred, and an Arminian Grammar, all which appeared in 1817, in 1818 Beppo, and in 1819 Mazeppa. He also made a flying trip to Florence and Rome, and some of the finest stanzas of Child Harold are descriptions of the classic ruins and the masterpieces of Grecian and medieval art. The Beauties and the Associations of Italy's Great Cities I stood in Venice on the bridge of Sighs, a palace and a prison on each hand. I saw from out the wave her structures rise, as from the stroke of the enchanter's wand. A thousand years their cloudy wings expand around me, and a dying glory smiles, o'er the far times when many a subject land looked to the winged lion's marble piles, where Venice sate in state, throned on her hundred isles. Byron's correspondence was small, being chiefly confined to his publisher, to more, and to a few intimate friends. These letters are interesting because of their frankness and wit, although they are not models of fine writing. Indeed, I do not know where to find any specimens of masterly prose in all his compositions. He was simply a poet, facile in every form of measure from Spencer to Campbell. No remarkable prose writings appeared in England at all, at that time, until Sir Walter Scott's novels were written, and until Macaulay, Carlyle, and Lamb wrote their inimitable essays. Nothing is more heavy and unartistic than Moore's Life of Byron. There is hardly a brilliant paragraph in it, and yet Moore is one of the most musical and melodious of all the English poets. Milton, indeed, was equally great in prose and verse, but very few men have been distinguished as prose writers and poets at the same time. Sir Walter Scott and Southey are the most remarkable exceptions. 
I think that Macaulay could have been distinguished as a poet if he had so pleased, but he would have been a literary poet like Wordsworth or Tennyson or Coleridge, not a man who sings out of his soul because he cannot help it, like Byron or Burns, or like Whittier among our American poets. It was not until 1819, when Byron had been three years in Venice, that he fell in love with the Countess Guccioli, the wife of one of the richest nobles of Italy, young, beautiful, and interesting. This love seems to have been disinterested and lasting, and while it was a violation of all the rules of morality, and would not have been allowed in any other country than Italy, it did not further degrade him. It was pretty much such a love as Voltaire had for Madame de Châtelet, and with it he was at last content. There is no evidence that Byron ever afterward loved any other woman, and what is very singular about the affair is that it was condoned by the husband until it became a scandal even in Italy. The countess was taken ill on her way to Ravenna, and thither Byron followed her and lived in the same palace with her, the palace of her husband, who courted the poet's society, and who afterward left his young countess to free intercourse with Byron at Bologna, not without a compensation in revenue, which was more disgraceful than the amour itself. About this time, Byron would probably have returned to England, but for the enchantment which enslaved him. He could not part from the countess, nor she from him. The Pope announced the separation of the count from his wife, and she returned to her father's house on a pittance of two hundred pounds a year. She sacrificed everything for the young English poet, her splendid home, her relatives, her honor, and her pride. Never was there a sadder episode in the life of a man of letters. If Byron had married such a woman in his early life, how different might have been his history. With such a love as she inspired, had he been faithful to it, he might have lived in radiant happiness, the idol and the pride of all admirers of genius wherever the English language is spoken, seated on a throne which kings might envy. So much have circumstances to do with human destinies. Since Abelard, never was there a man more capable of a genuine, fervid love than Byron, and yet he threw himself away. He was his own worst enemy, and all from an ill-regulated nature which he inherited both from his father and his mother, with no mentor to whom he would listen. And thus his star sunk down in the eternal shades, a fallen Lucifer expelled from bliss. I would not condone the waywardness and vices of Byron or weaken the eternal distinctions between right and wrong. The impression I wish to convey is that there were two very distinctly marked sides to his character, that his conduct was not without palliations in view of his surroundings, the force of his temptations and his wayward nature, uncurbed by parental care or early training, indeed rather goaded on by the unfortunate conditions of his youth to find consolation in doing as he liked, without regard to duty or the opinions of society. Born with the keenest sensibilities, the emotive powers of tremendous sweep and force, neglected, crossed, mortified, with no wise guidance, he was driven in upon himself and developed an intense self-will which would endure no control. Unhappy will be the future of that man, however amiable, affectionate, and generous, who, whether from neglect in youth, like Byron, or from sheer willfulness in manhood, determines to act as the mood takes him, because he has freedom of will without regard to the social restraints imposed upon conscience by the unwritten law, which pursues him wherever he goes, even should he fly to the uttermost parts of the earth. No one can escape from moral accountability, whether in a seductive paradise or in a dungeon or in a desert. The only stability 
for society must be in the character of its individual members. Before pleasure comes duty, to family, to friends, to country, to self, and to the maker. This sense of moral accountability Byron seems never to have had in regard to anybody or anything, his self-indulgence culminating in an egotism melancholy to behold. He would go where he pleased, say what he pleased, write as he pleased, do what he pleased, without any constraint, whether in opposition or not to the customs and rules of society, his own welfare, or the laws of God. It was moral madness pursuing him to destruction, the logical and necessary sequence of unrestrained self-will, sometimes assuming the form of angelic loveliness and inspiration in the eyes of his idolaters. No counselor guided him wiser than Moore or Shelley. Even the worldly advice of Rogers and Madame de Stahl was thrown away whenever they presumed to counsel him. Nobody could influence him. His abandonment to fitful labors or pleasures was alike his glory and his shame. After a day of frivolity, he would consume the midnight hours in the intensest studies, stimulated by gin, to awake in the morning in lassitude or pain, for work he must, as well as play. The consequence of this burning the candle at both ends was failing health and diminished energies, until his short race was run. He had produced more poetry at 34 years of age than any other English poet at the age of 50, some of almost transcendent merit, but more of questionable worth, though not of questionable power. Aside from the child Harold, the Hebrew Melodies, the Prisoner of Chillon, and perhaps the Corsair, the Bride of Abydos, Lara, and the Siege of Corinth, the rest, excepting minor poems, however beautiful in measure and grand in thought, give a shock to the religious or to the moral sentiments. Cain and Manfred are regarded as almost blasphemous, though probably not so meant to be by the poet, in view of the stirring questions of Grecian tragedy. While the longest of his poems, Don Juan, is an insult to womanhood and a disgrace to genius, for although containing some of the most exquisite touches of description and finest flights of poetic feeling, its theme is along the lowest level of human passion. Whatever Byron wrote was unhesitatingly published and read, whether good or evil, whatever were those follies and defiances which excluded him from the best society. And it is a matter of surprise to me that any noted and wealthy publisher could be found, in respectable and conventional England, venal enough to publish perhaps the most corrupting poem in our language, worse than anything which Boccaccio wrote for his Italian readers, or anything which plain-spoken fielding and the dramatists of the reign of Charles II ever allowed to go into print. For though they were coarser in their language, they were not so seductive in their spirit, and did not poison the soul like Don Juan, the very name of which has become a synonym for extreme depravity. That abominable poem was read because Lord Byron wrote it, and because its immorality was slightly veiled by the beauty of the language, even when a copy could not be found on the table of any respectable drawing-room, and the name of the author was seldom mentioned except with stern and honest censure. It is perhaps fair to quote Murray's own words, throwing the responsibility on the public. They talked of his immoral writings, but there is a whole row of sermons glued to my shelf. I hate the sight of them. Why don't they buy those? A fair enough retort, and yet, like the newspaper purveyors of the records of vice in our own day, the publisher was responsible for making the vile stuff accessible and thus debasing the public taste. End of section 8